Well, it's been said a few times, but one more time, happy Father's Day. Um, on Mother's Day, I had more than enough chocolate for the men, and so I thought, I've, and, and actually in light of the passage, it would be really bad if we only had chocolate for men this morning, you'll see. So, uh, so there's chocolate in the back, please take one, so there's enough for second service, but uh, everybody can take a piece of chocolate if you're a guy or a girl, if you're a father or not, and celebrate, in celebration of Father's Day. Um, we have a little bit more time this service because... I tried to let you all know this in the email and stuff, but no one's getting baptized first service. Sorry. Everyone's, it's kind of good for me because I don't get wet. But, but at, we have four people getting baptized, but they're all getting baptized at the end of second service. That's just what worked for them. Um, so what I would say is, if you want to, because they're going to, I've read the testimonies. It's going to be awesome. So if you want to come back, I would say around 1130, 11.30, 11.30, 11.40. You can come back, just walk right in while I'm preaching. I won't mind at all. I'll get ready and hear the testimonies, or we are streaming online, as some of you know right now and are watching at home. So you can just tune in online. Just go to our webpage if you want to be a part of these four really cool stories of what Jesus is doing. I'm not going to say too much about other announcements this morning. Uh, We have bulletins again, which some of you were really excited. Hey, it's cool. We're slowly and slowly like getting back to where we a lot of the ways we were doing things before we've, we're trying to turn a corner so grab a bulletin there's plenty of announcements in there um the one thing i will highlight is sunday school starting today so if you want to join kyle and barb un, under the tent as long as the weather is good just for community we're trying to find places for community and um and wednesday night i'm starting what i'm calling community nights uh, if you want to just be connecting with our church and we are as many of you know, Kyle and Barb are transitioning into a new season of life, and we're going to celebrate them on July 25th, if you want to be there for that as well. Uh, and I guess the last thing I will say here, and then I guess I'll pray one more time. Uh, we're, not, we're not pastoring an offering plate right now. We are going to get back to that stuff. We kind of, all of our teams were driven by volunteers, and the pandemic impacted a lot of our volunteer teams, so we're kind of rebuilding all of our teams. But in the time being, we're still not passing a plate, so you can give by putting a check in the back or mailing it in or giving online. Um, but let's pray one more time. We're going to pray a lot throughout this morning, which is a good thing, I think. So, yeah, Jesus, you're so good. You're so good to us. And I think, th- I think there's going to be a lot. I mean, we're going to cover a lot of ground here, and I think this will be encouraging. But also, I think it's meant to be challenging. And I, thir- I just continue to be amazed how the church in Corinth was in a different context, dealing with different specifics, but the temptation to sin and to division and to war, it's just, it's always there. So would we, maybe, maybe for the first time and maybe for the millionth time, would we aw- awaken to your love and your mercy and forgiveness. And not only see it, but receive it so that we can be changed, (laughs) so that we can look more like you, Jesus. Would that be true of us this morning? In your name we pray. Amen. So we're journeying through this letter Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. I've entitled this, What Just Happened, because all the way through you're like, does this really and today's another, does this really happen in a church? The early church? This is, what, this is what happened? So today's another one of those. And as we get going, I don't have a story this morning. I thought I'd just give you a question. And then maybe 
if you're with family or friends, maybe, maybe you'll think of the same thing and you can smile at each other. But a good way to get you prepared for what we're going to read is to just ask the question, can you remember maybe the last or maybe a prominent awkward meal you were a part of? Maybe somebody showed up and you didn't know they were coming and you didn't know you weren't prepared or, or, or you found out you invited somebody and they had dietary restrictions you didn't know about and you didn't have food for your guests or, or somebody says something awkward. Your kid just, not quite to the social intelligence, just says something totally awkward and you're just it's so uncomfortable. I don't know, can you remember? Maybe you can remember, you can't, but just take a moment and think about that. Because Paul's going to talk about a meal, I think actually awkward, you'll see as we get into the text this morning, awkward would, would be a generous word <laughs> to describe what was happening when the early church gathered in Corinth to worship. <laughs> so let's begin, let's begin. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to cover the last half of the, ver- the chapter, beginning in verse 17. We'll kind of work our way through. Here's how Paul begins. But in the following structure. And just in case you don't know the tone, let me just say this. Paul is not happy. (laughs) He's not happy. He is not, you could say, a happy apostle. He says in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Imagine somebody saying this about us when we gather. Because when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. It's actually worse things are happening because you're gathering. What is going on, right? Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Now, we've talked about some of the divisions earlier in the letter that have to do with possibly cultural or ethnic lines, Greek, Roman, Jewish, what leaders, I'm I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Paul's addressed some of the divisions, but now he's going to get into other divisions. We'll talk about this. We are always, as human beings, trying to divide ourselves to make ourselves feel more important. And I love to point this out. Corinthians is one of the best places to point this out for those of you who enjoy sarcasm. Uh, There's biblical evidence of sarcasm. You have biblical justification to be sarcastic. Don't you like that? Now you got to know when. Answer a fool according to his folly or don't answer a fool according to his folly. Proverbs will say you need to know when to be sarcastic. But Paul, I believe, is being very sarcastic here. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Of course you should have division so that those of you who are truly more superior should get the honor and recognition that you deserve. Pure sarcasm. What's the specific here? Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You're calling it the Lord's Supper. You say you're eating the Lord's. It's not the Lord's Supper. What you're doing is worse. It's not better. This is awful. Verse 21, for an eating, and we'll we'll talk about what's going on or the best historical reconstruction. In eating, each one goes ahead with their own meal. And one goes hungry and another gets drunk. And what does Paul say next? What? (laughs) It's like, what? Some of you go hungry and others get drunk. What? And you call it the Lord's Supper? What? Okay, I'm done. Sorry. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? And here's some of the biting challenge. 
Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Is that what you're doing? And Paul's beside himself. Well, what do I say? How could I come? I will not. No, I will not commend you. This is awful. So let's, again, let's get into this story a little bit. The gospel came to Corinth in profound ways and brought change. What do we talk about? Jesus is inaugurating and bringing the kingdom of God. And one of the ways that I like to talk about the kingdom of God is that Jesus is rearranging things. We as human beings have arranged the world in a certain way, and it's not the best way. And Jesus has come to rearrange things. So the gospel is bringing change to this group of Christians in Corinth. He's turning a lot of things upside down. Again, read the Sermon on the Mount and see. Jesus isn't saying, kill your enemy. He's saying, love your enemy. I mean, he's turning so many things upside down. But he's also doing things differently in terms of how you arrange yourself as, as I don't know, a religious community. Because if you read through the Gospels, and I would submit to you particularly the Gospel of Luke, which I'll talk again about a little bit later, one of the things that Jesus is doing is he's moving the center of his ministry from the temple to the table. We've talked about this before. It's kind of a sermon for another day. But read through the Gospels. Jesus begins to do this as part of what gets him in trouble. He does work that was normally only done at the temple around the table. And it's radical. It upsets a lot of people because in doing that, he's removing all kinds of barriers of exclusion that have been there. And he's inviting everybody, everybody to come to the table. There's no divisions anymore. We all come as equals to the table. And what I think, I think the church in Corinth came alive to the gospel and to Jesus but uh, we talk about this in our journey of discipleship. We have to unlearn a lot of things. And unlearning these distinctions and these divisions is hard for everyone. It was hard for the church in Corinth. And it was slowly drifting away from the nature of the kingdom of God where all are equal. And Paul's talked about other divisions before. But here he's bringing up primarily the socioeconomic class distinctions that they have brought from the broader culture into the church. They were dividing themselves along socioeconomic lines. Our best guess of what was going on Sunday was not a day off in the first century, and so it was a work day. But the church met on Sunday because it's the Lord's Day. Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday. So the church met on Sundays. Well, some people were servants or slaves, and they worked very demanding hours. Other people were more leisure in their life, probably a little bit more well-off financially. And I think what was happening, the early church would always gather. We'll talk a little bit about this for a meal. They would gather in homes, usually the homes of whoever, the, maybe the wealthiest or the largest home, they would gather in their home. Again, imagine a church of anywhere between 30 and 50 people. And imagine those who aren't working as hard. And it's kind of a bring your own food. And those who aren't working as hard and have a lot of money are, are able to begin the feast earlier in the day. And they're eating lavish meals and they're getting drunk. <laughs> And then the poorer people who don't have it, they don't have time to even prepare a meal. They're just showing up with scraps because they've been working all day. They don't have much money. And they get there, and everybody's already full. 
And, and there's just such disparity. Now, we'll get into how that would have been more Roman than Christian and what's going on, but, but that gives you an idea of what was going on. In fact, even as I was remembering this, I don't know if any of you have ever been to Ravinia. You know about Ravinia, right? This outdoor concert in the northern suburbs of Chicago. It's really close to our seminary, our denominational seminary, Trinity. And when Kami and I were students at Trinity, my wife and I, we, uh, we found out later than I wish I would have found out, but if you go to Ravinia as a college student with a college ID, when the Chicago Symphony Orchestra is playing, you get in for free. Oh. So we would go every time the CSO was playing. We knew where to park for free. <laughs> and we would go. And, and what you do at Ravinia is you picnic. And you just enjoy the, the beauty and the music. Well, I, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but Kami and my idea of like lavishly eating when we were in seminary was Little Caesars. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> It was three bucks at the time for a pizza and breadsticks. That's, that was, we, so we would take things like Little Caesars to Ravinia. I mean, that instantly labeled us, right? Everybody knew, okay, I get it. How'd you get tickets? You know, like, it was free. But if you've ever been to Ravinia, there are people. I mean, they will wheel in the most elaborate picnics you've ever, and you know they got money. It's just obvious. I don't, some people are probably doing it because they like the attention. Others are just because they can. But the whole point is you know where people stand economically at Ravinia. <laughs> Go sometime. You'll see what I'm saying. What Paul is saying here is that the, the rich are bringing fancy meals and getting drunk instead of a shared meal for the whole church. And, and I hope you see this. Paul is most upset because the poor are eating hardly anything. Do you understand in Ephesians, he'll say something about getting drunk. It's not a good idea. But here, I hope you see this. Paul is is more upset about their class distinctions than getting drunk at church, which imagine that. I mean, Paul doesn't even have time to talk about getting drunk at church because he's so upset about the divisions. Paul is saying we don't bring those divisions to church. The gospel brings people together who never otherwise would be together, who would be, but we do, we come because of Jesus. So let's pause and let's think, and you've got to be a little honest with yourself here, but, but what are divisions that we have in our world? How is the world divided up, right? Just think through some of them. Some of the divisions that have always been there are economic divisions. We divide the world into rich and poor, but Paul says not in the church. We divide the world ethnically by, your, by your, your race or your color. Paul says not in the church. We divide the, the world, and I think Corinth was dealing with some of this with the Greeks and the Romans and the Jews. We divide it by our nation, by the na- our nationality. Paul says not in the church. And the year that we just lived through, maybe, I don't know how much this would have been true in the first century, but it's certainly been true in our, in our current setting We also work really hard, it seems, these days to divide the world politically. And and I've tried to say this throughout the last two years, really. You can have different opinions. It's it's, It's inevitable that you will. But when you come to the church, you drop all of those divisions because we are one in Christ. That is what it means to be the church. We do not bring any of those divisions into the church. We set it aside because we're, we're all equal. 
And most of the times, our, our clinging to the divisions are ways, because we don't always understand who we are in Christ, that we're loved by Jesus, and that's enough, we try to find all the, I do this all the time, we try to find all these ways to make ourselves feel important. And Paul says, you don't have to play those games anymore. You leave all that, and you come to church, and we're equal. When we gather, we don't try to accentuate our differences. We gather because of our love for Jesus. And let me give you a little bit, I did a little bit more research this week, and I stumbled across a book a little while ago by a guy named Alan Street, S-T-R-E-E-T-T, for those of you interested. I'll tell you the title of his book, and some of you will be like, ooh, and some of you will be like, I'll never read a book with that title, but here we go. By Alan Street, it's called Subversive Meals, which that part's fine, but here's the next part. An analysis of the Lord's Supper under Roman domination during the first century. There you go, (laughs) Some of you will love that and some of you. It's an interesting book. I, I learned a lot. And in the book, he talks about how communion really does, and this isn't that surprising, but communion stems from three sources. The first is the Passover meal. And we'll, t- we'll actually end by talking a little bit about the Passover meal and, and Moses and leading the people out of Egypt and the deliverance. So, so the Passover meal is behind the way we understand the Lord's Supper. Uh, the Last Supper is a major part. The Last Supper, Jesus with his disciples in the upper room, was a Passover meal. That's where we get the deep connection. But the Last Supper is a big part of why we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper. That's one of the things this read through. Every time I read through the Bible, I learn something new. I'm always in a different season of life. I've learned new things. And, and this read through for 1 Corinthians, and I've tried to say this as we've gone through the series, I've really been struck by how much I think Paul really is leaning into the story of Jesus and trying to help this church in Corinth live like Jesus. And so you just think about the Last Supper and how it might relate to what Paul is trying to teach here. Think about John 13. Think about John 13. Jesus is the one to be honored at the Last Supper. And what does he do? He takes the role of a servant. And he washes the feet of his disciples. And Peter is outraged. No, you're the one to be honored. How dare you? No, but Jesus, I'm turning everything upside down. And when you gather to remember me, this is your posture. You don't come to like exemplify how great you are. You come to serve. Or read Luke 22. I spent a little time in Luke 22 because it'll map well with what I'm going to talk about with the third source, the Roman banquet, in just a second. But in Luke 22, you have this meal. You have the drink, the bread, and the, and the wine. And then right after, in verse 24, the disciples, and we'll talk about this, it's like the symposium of the Roman banquet. The disciples get into a heated discussion about who is the greatest in the kingdom. (laughs) And Jesus says, oh, you guys just don't get it. This is not what it means to gather in my name. So we have the Passover, we'll come back to you. You have the, the Last Supper. Jesus in the upper room right before his crucifixion and resurrection. And then you have the Roman banquet. This is really what I learned the most about from Alan Street's book. The Roman banquet is what the first Christians really used as the pattern for the order of their worship service. Every Roman citizen participated once a week or once a month in a Roman banquet. And it's really where the Romans reinforced their culture and their allegiance to Caesar 
and their place in the hierarchy and status in society of Rome. It was conducted in a private home where this word should ring to you if you've read the Gospels, where you reclined at the table. You didn't sit at the table, you reclined at the table. And you usually did this within your own class. You were seated, where you were seated, let people know where you stood in the hierarchy of that society. It reinforces your place. It lets everyone know where they are and where they belong in Roman structure. It was also usually males only. Among the elites, there were occasionally high-ranking women involved, and slaves were never invited to a Roman banquet. Someone would host or sponsor. It would begin with a meal, and then there was a, a libation, which is just kind of a pouring out of a cup, an offer to honor a god. So they thanked. That's why we call it the Eucharist. They thanked Roman gods. They thanked Jupiter. They thanked Caesar who was known as the Son of God. Cup was passed around. Everyone would take a sip from it. And then there was a symposium where wine and dessert were served. And there was either entertainment or quite often a philosophical, maybe scholarly discussion, symposium. So again, you can imagine the church would gather. They would eat a meal together because we're family. And Jesus moved us to the table. And then we would, they, would, they would break the bread and take the cup, and then there would be a sermon or a discussion, or actually we'll keep reading some of the stuff that was happening in Corinth in the weeks ahead, the, what was happening when they gathered. But this was kind of their structure. And it was one of the things as I was reading through Street's book where to the average Roman, if you just walked by a church gathering, you would think they, they were doing everything like everyone else does. But if you actually stopped and looked in, you would realize there was no order Uh, very wealthy people sat right next to slaves and called them brother and sister. Men and women reclined around the table. And they didn't pour out a libation to Jupiter or Caesar. They pledged their allegiance to Jesus and Jesus alone. So again, uh, four ways in which the Christian banquet was different than the Roman banquet. Who was honored? This was all about Jesus. They gathered to honor Jesus. What kingdom was celebrated? They did not celebrate the Roman Empire, which would have been honestly politically dangerous in the first century. But they celebrated another kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom that was breaking in because of Jesus. Everyone was seated and seen and treated as equals, men and women, slaves, wealthy. You could sit anywhere. There were no longer distinctions. That's what was driving Paul crazy about what was happening in Corinth. And then there may have been a wealthy person hosting in their house. There may have been somebody who was, obviously in Corinth they were bringing their own food, but in other places somebody would provide the food for everyone. But the host was always Jesus. It was the Lord's Supper. The host was always Jesus. Let's keep reading. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, and we'll talk about this language because it's interesting, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. 
until he comes. So a couple of things here that I think are really cool. First off, Paul says, I received this from the Lord. Now, I think that's interesting because Paul is pretty clear in much of his letters where he's had a revelation, a word from Jesus. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, right? Paul encountered the risen Lord in a variety of ways. And here, I think it's interesting. He doesn't say, I got this from Peter, who was at the Last Supper. I didn't hear this from John. (laughs) I got this from Jesus himself. So if you don't think communion is important, (laughs) I want you to just think about this. Of all the things Jesus could have said to Paul, this was one of them. Jesus felt like this was that important. It's one of the ways we tangibly, and we'll talk about, remember the gospel. And then he says, you know, and he's kind of connecting it to what actually happened on the night in which he was betrayed. Interesting. Why would he use that? Again, think about it. Paul's so frustrated with what's going on. And I think Paul is reminding them, even at the Last Supper, Judas sat at the table with Jesus. And this is where some of the challenge comes. You can hear it this way. Paul is saying to us, when we gather for communion, don't be Judas. Don't be Judas. You might be Judas. Judas sat there. And if you're going to gather in the name of Jesus and celebrate all your distinctions and divisions and call it the Lord's Supper, that's a betrayal. Do not call it the Lord's Supper and then dishonor the character of our King. (laughs) That's a betrayal, Paul says. It's a reminder. And then he says, do this in remembrance of me. So what does he mean by remember? I want us to think, because remember here, is the act of making these realities new and fresh in our lives today. It's more than just recalling. If your dad comes up to you and says, what, did you forget it was Father's Day? And you say, I didn't forget it's Father's Day, I just didn't do anything about it. (laughs) It's not really remembering. (laughs) Not in the way that Paul's referring to here. Paul is saying as you gather and celebrate communion together, it's a retelling of the story. It's an identity-shaping redemption story. We remember what Jesus did, why he had to do it, and our identity with him in it. One scholar said, for Paul's audience, the meal served as a venue where food and drink, stories about Jesus, and the songs and symbols helped diners to be transported back to Golgotha, so that they might participate in the deliverance wrought by God through this Christ event. The imagined memory elicited by the meal was meant to enable those present to experience the crucifixion and resurrection for themselves, even though they were not eyewitnesses to the events. Through memory, his story becomes their story. When you and I participate in the Lord's Supper, we aren't merely recalling events from 2,000 years ago. We are inviting God to make the power of those events present today, to free us and deliver us and rescue us from our own bondage to sin. Amen? I mean, that's what we're going to do in a few minutes. Don't miss the power. Verse 27 Whoever, therefore, and again, we're back to the challenge. I told, he's not a happy apostle. 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. And sometimes people try to, what does he mean? Am I coming in an unworthy manner? Should I not have communion? Again, I think he's primarily talking about what was happening. in That's an unworthy manner. <laughs> you're gathering together as the body, but you're not operating with the character of your king. You'll be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself or herself. And then, so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on themselves. That is why many of you, is interesting, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we, we would not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Don't start until everybody's there. If someone's hungry, just eat what everyone else is eating and then go home and fill up so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And then he says, what, don't you want to know this? About the other things, I will give directions when I come. What other things, Paul? I want to know, but we don't know. Well, here, I will just, I mean, it's just interesting, right? This, what, 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 he's, what he's getting at, some, some of the stuff, people getting sick. Paul is as mysterious as ever as he suggests that the broken nature of their fellowship is negatively affecting both their spiritual and their physical health. I don't know exactly what to do with it. I don't want to be superstitious with that. Please don't be. God's not this superstitious, like, uh, impersonal deity. He's a personal God, and he's a father. (laughs) But something's going on here, and Paul sees a connection within his worldview. And Paul gives us a metaphor to work with. It's really a metaphor of a court scene. Let me try to unpack it. I'm going to quote another scholar here, but I I think this really gets at what Paul's doing. This is how the court scene works. Really, verse 31, 32. There will be a future judgment at which those who refuse the gospel will be condemned. Paul here refers to them in a negative sense as the world. Part of the strange privilege of being a member of God's people is to have one's judgment in advance, as it were, so as not to be judged on the last day. So when the Lord judges us, his family, in the present time, the result is discipline. Things happen to us which are to be understood as both punishments and warnings. And because the Eucharist is a moment in Christian living when the future comes to meet us in the present, this judgment and discipline is brought into focus there, and it gives us a choice in the present moment. Paul says either examine and judge yourselves, making sure your behavior is appropriate at this meal, or face the scrutiny and judgment of the Lord himself, you choose. Which, which, again, it just, there's so much going on in communion, right? It's this, this beautiful celebration. It's this thanksgiving. We've been saved. We've been forgiven. Mercy. But it also comes with this harsh edge of, but, but revere God and take him seriously. Why not answer to discipline today rather than judgment on the last day, right? <laughs> Paul brings correction to the church in Corinth because they're acting I could say too Roman 
in their banquet. They're not acting enough like Jesus. They're being more Roman than Christian. And Paul says, you got to stop. You're to be more Jesus, more Christian than anything else. So let me go one more step. And this is where I kind of, you know, I actually heard somebody else teaching through Hebrews 11 not that long ago. And I, and I thought the overlaps were fascinating. So since communion has to do with the Last Supper and the Roman banquet, but also Passover, let me just read to you. At first, you might not see what I'm doing here, but let me read these verses because they're pretty straightforward from Hebrews chapter 11. And then, and then I want to make some comments about why, why would I leave Corinthians and come to this in this, in this sermon today. Uh, uh, Hebrews 11 verse 23. Hebrews is an awesome book. I need to preach through it sometime. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict to kill all the kids, all the boys that had been born. I want you to think about verses 24 and 25. I, I, even as I heard somebody teaching through this text, I almost was like, I didn't know those verses were in there, but they're in there. L- listen to these verses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. This is where I start to see a major overlap of what's happening in Corinth. I'll explain it in a second. Verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Those are interesting verses. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. Interesting, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He kept his eyes on Jesus. By faith, he kept the Passover, this is the background of the Eucharist, and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So why am I reading this? Well, let's think about this. Paul is, I mean, Paul is writing to the whole church in Corinth. But who's he really writing to? At this part of the letter, who's he really talking to? He's really only talking to those who are on top. With the way that humans in Rome have organized and arranged their society, which the kingdom of God is coming to turn upside down, Paul's really only talking to those who are seated at the top. He's not talking to the poor. Think about Moses. Life in Egypt. The Hebrew people were poor. They were on the bottom. There was massive inequality in Egypt. And Moses was on top. He was the son of Pharaoh's daughter, or seen that way anyway. And it's got to raise the question, whether we're talking about the first century church in Corinth and what they were facing as they read through Paul's letter, or we're talking about Moses, I just think this is a theme that runs through the whole Bible. Why would Moses change? Why would he forsake the ways of Egypt? Why would those on top in Rome forsake the ways of Rome? Why would you give up your power and your prestige when you're on top? How did Moses leave what everybody else wants? Don't you want to know the I want to know the answer to that. How did he do that? And the author of Hebrews 
seems to say it was by faith. It was by faith. He kept his eyes. What does he say? On the one who is invisible. And you got to think when Moses changed, I know when the early church was changing things in Rome, it made people uncomfortable. It made people angry. But Moses was willing to give up. He was willing to tell the truth. Even though he was comfortable and he was successful, because he was locked in on Jesus. He didn't know it was Jesus. He didn't know the name of Jesus at the time, but that's why I love Hebrews. We, as Christians, we go back and we read the Old Testament as Christians. We read the Old Testament with Jesus as our guide. We go looking for Jesus. Moses kept his eyes on the one who was invisible. What does the author of Hebrews say to you and I now that Jesus has come? Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Since we're surrounded in, this, in the church, in the global church, by a great cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight. Let, like Moses, let's identify what are the things we don't need that are hindering us. Let's, let's throw aside the sin that clings so closely and let's run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus. If you're a part of Cross you, I hope this is just repetitive. <laughs> but it's bleeding into your soul. We look to Jesus. We hold Jesus high. Why? Because he's the founder. He's the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who puts us back together. He's the one who gave his life so that you and I can have life. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and now we see it at the right hand of the throne of God. <laughs> Amen and hallelujah. That's the gospel, folks. How do we make daring, risky moves of faith in the midst of a comfortable life? How do we lay things down for the benefit of others? We keep our eyes on Jesus. I think it's safe to say if Moses had fixed his eyes on his security on his finances, on his reputation, on his position, on his popularity, he never would have had the courage or the faith to do what he did and rescue the people of God from slavery in Egypt. But Moses kept his eyes on, we can say today, Jesus. We follow Jesus, we keep our eyes on Jesus, and if you don't keep your eyes on Jesus, you will be paralyzed by fear and never move. And never change and never grow. But Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, so we keep our eyes on him. And if we keep our eyes on Jesus, we stay on the, on, we, 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 we stay on the race, we stay on the journey. If we put our eyes on anything else, our faith evaporates. We sink just like Peter, right? <laughs> the moment you take your eyes off Jesus, your faith just evaporates. So we fix our eyes on Jesus. We're tempted. Oh, we're, tempted to, we're tempted to fix our eyes on so many other things, even good things. We can fix our eyes on some kind of outcome. We can fix our eyes on some kind of justice movement. We can fix our eyes on some kind of political movement. We can even fix our eyes on some kind of spiritual movement. But all of those, your faith will evaporate. We fix our eyes on Jesus. 
and we trust him and we follow him. And then we're overwhelmed by the radical change that he is doing as he rearranges the world in love. The kingdom takes care of all those other things and more. But you and I, we stay locked on Jesus. We stay enraptured by the beauty of the cruciform, Jesus Christ on the cross. Serving us, loving us, giving away his life. So I want you to hear the challenge of, of, of Paul. Don't be Judas. Don't betray your king. <laughs> but I also think it's fair, having journeyed through 1 Corinthians, to also say, because Paul will say similar things in his letter, I want to say to you, don't fix your, don't fix your eyes on anything else. But I want to say, but that's not you, right? And that's not me. We have our eyes locked on Jesus. That's why we're here. <laughs> So let's keep our eyes locked on Jesus. And we're going to do now, I did a lot of teaching around what we're going to do next. So if you have the bread and the juice, I want you to take it. Um, if you don't have it, if you want to get up and go get it in the hall, it's great. But as we participate in the Lord's Supper, as we gather as the church, we are doing four things. Let me remind you of the four things we're doing. We are honoring Jesus because he is our Lord. Jesus is our king. He's our only king, and he reigns over all. We are celebrating a kingdom, but it's the kingdom of God. We are celebrating the way Jesus is rearranging the world around love and mercy and forgiveness. We are treating everyone as equal. Maybe maybe that's something you need to confess. Judge yourself today, is what Paul would say. Examine yourself. Confess your sin. There's been a lot of polarizing arguments in our culture, in our country in the last year. And even if you've done your best to resist them, sometimes it's hard not to get swept up in them. Maybe today is as good a day as any to repent. Wow, Jesus, I have looked at people as less than me. I don't want to admit it, but in the silence of my own heart before you, Jesus, I've looked at people with different skin colors as less than me. I've looked at immigrants or people from other countries as less than me. I've looked at people from that other political party as less than me. Well, now's your chance to examine. Judge yourself so you don't have to be judged by Jesus, right? That's what he's saying. Judge yourself. Examine yourself. Repent. We are all equals. And Jesus is our host. Maybe, maybe you've been trying to be Lord of your life. That's, I think, often our biggest temptation. But our other temptations are money, sex, and power, comfort, ease, safety. Maybe the Holy Spirit is just moving in you right now. Maybe you need to examine yourself. Between Jesus is with each one of us right now. He's here in this room, and he hears you. Examine yourself. Confess your sin. It's going to be quiet for just a, a couple seconds. And then let me say it this way. We come to communion as the invited unworthy. You like, I like that. We're never the deserving. It's not our table. It's the table of the Lord. It's Jesus' table. We come because we're invited, not because we're unworthy. Or not because we're worthy. <laughs> we're unworthy. 
And the communion table is the ultimate undoing of us versus them. The communion table is where Jesus wants to heal the world of all that divides us. Forgive us our sins and give us his life. So Paul says in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my salvation. Poured out for you, shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray one more time. Jesus, we recognize the seriousness of this moment. And honestly, I think I confess, I can run by this way too quickly. (laughs) We're just trying to slow down and pause and drink deeply of this moment. In a sense, we're transported through time to the cross where we see what our sin and our shame and our guilt has done to the only true, perfect, living example of your love. And at the same time, while we're transported to the cross and we see the ugliness of our sin, we're also somehow transported to the empty tomb. (laughs) That stone is rolled away and Jesus is risen and we are resurrected with you, Jesus. And we are resting in the assurance that our sins have been forgiven. You are putting us back together. You are healing us. And maybe a mysterious way too, as Paul says, you're healing us physically and emotionally and relationally. You're putting us back together, Jesus. Here and now in ways we'll never understand as we transport through time to the crucifixion and the resurrection, we are undone and then put back together. New creation and new life. We're no longer ashamed. We're no longer broken. We're no longer empty. We are full. And we are made whole. And we say thank you, Jesus. Amen and hallelujah.